Welcome to Non-Consensus Investing. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and CIO at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. At Lumida, we help guide clients through the intricacies of managing substantial wealth so they don't have to shoulder the burden alone. Through this podcast, we draw back the curtain to reveal the strategies employed by the best in the business for their high net worth clients so that you too can invest beyond the ordinary. In this episode of Non-Consensus Investing, we speak with Kyle Samani, co-founder of Multicoin Capital. We covered his investment philosophy, criteria for evaluating deals, managing volatility, and key crypto trends. Kyle provided a fascinating inside look at Multicoin's investment process and his early conviction in Solana back in 2018. He also shared his perspective on the potential for L2S to disintermediate L1S in the future. For anyone interested in how top crypto investors think, this is a conversation you won't want to miss. Ron, thank you for being here. Super excited to jump into all this stuff. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's hit it. Let's get into it. So tell us your personal story. You're from Austin. Then you, were in, you, were, you went to NYU. Why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah. So I was born and raised uh, here in Austin. My parents still live about 30, 40 minutes away. Uh, my dad's a computer engineer, runs a software company. So I've been around computers my whole life. Started building computers and programming when I was roughly 11 or so. Um, was never an amazing programmer, but I was very intrigued. Uh, when it came time to go to college, I uh, went to NYU because I was excited about going to New York, being in the big city, uh, learning about business. Um, also, I, I thought that programmers were losers and that Except finance you were people, programming and building computers on the side. Well, I realized, I was like, no, 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 that's, that's for losers. I'm going to go to NYU <laughs> and become a business guy. Uh, manage was, the engineers, the that, Steve Jobs model. No, 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 I was too cool for that. I was ready to just go work on Wall Street. I oh, thought Wall I Street see. was cool. Oh, I see. Fascinating. Okay. Um, over the course of a couple of years in college, came to realize that I had no interest in working in finance uh, and that my passion was, in fact, technology and that I should pursue my passion. Uh, I also uh, met Tushar at NYU. We were classmates at NYU, and we both became very close, bonding over our shared interests kind of at the intersection of finance and technology. Um, was in college 2008 to 2012. Um, and so this was the rise of the app store, the rise of the iPhone. Tushar and I were both absolutely mega Apple bulls. Um, I continue to be, I'd say, a, a lightweight Apple fanboy to this day, but uh, we were just outrageously bullish the iPhone. Um, and I remember every, every uh, for probably three years or so, every earnings call, Apple earnings call, they blew it out of the water. Right. And I remember it was so obvious to us that I was like, this is the greatest trade in, yeah. in history. Um, and then I thought all of investing would be that easy. And it turns out it, it's actually not that and easy. And Apple <laughs> outperformed Bitcoin, actually. For, I will look back to Apple, too. I've, I've, I've also been an Apple bull, but good. Um, so anyways, I did NYU. After college, I decided not to go down the Wall Street career track. Came back to Austin. Um, started working for uh, my dad. My dad builds software for hospitals, hmm. uh, electronic medical record systems. Which, which firm or company is that? Uh, the company is called VersaSuite. Okay. They cater primarily to rural hospitals. So the ones in big cities typically are run by Epic and Cerner or the two Absolutely, big players exactly, there. Exactly, yep. Uh, VersaSuite caters to smaller hospitals. Um, so learned a lot about healthcare operations, how to design enterprise software systems, databases, um, obviously enterprise sales cycles, all that complexity. Um, and then uh, kind of grew, grew it wanted to do my own thing. Um, I have what I like to call shiny new object syndrome. And so it's um, called ADHD. Right. Adderall is in shortage apparently nationally. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot, lot of, a lot of people have a similar, similar syndrome and, uh, Google announced Google glass in 2013 yep. and I got very excited Same. about the shiny new object. Uh, and it was, it was fairly obvious that there would be uses in healthcare. It was actually not particularly obvious what the consumer use for cases surgery were. use cases, uh, paramedics, surgeons, nurses, I mean, any job where your hands are tied up, it's like fairly, it's fairly intuitive. Yep. Um, and so I was like, I know healthcare, I know operational ho hospital workflows, like Google Glass, like it was, it was super obvious for me. Um, Very cool. So uh, started my first company in May of 2013 called Pristine. Uh, Pristine built software. We started off focused on surgeons. We later did dealt with some other kind of uh, functions as well in, in healthcare workflows. Uh, raised some venture money, got to about 25-ish people, maybe 22, um, a few million in revenue, uh, and then Google. How much in revenue? A few million in revenue. Oh, that's, revenue. that's you had product market fit. Uh, yeah, you know, you in hindsight, traction. I'm, you had traction, we had some traction, say. certainly. We had some, some hospitals using it. Uh, and then after, I think, 18 months or thereabouts, Google killed Google Glass. Right. Um, 
Well, correction, they killed the consumer program. And they actually were like, no, 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 there's an enterprise program still. Uh, but the perception was that it was dead. So Apple rug pulled you. Uh, Google, Google. Sorry, me. Google. Google correct. Google me. Glass, yes. Yes, Google, Google rugged me. And, um, you know, after that, I pivoted the company. We tried some other stuff in insurance, some other places. Uh, none of it really worked. Um, ultimately, the business was kind of acquired for IP and for, for talent, and uh, no one really made any money. Sure. Um, I, you know, wanted to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, I spent 18, an 18-month period between Pristine and, and Multicoin. Um, this was a very long period of time. After six months, my parents started to be like, hey, what are you doing with yourself? You know, I told everyone three months, and once you get to six, people start asking questions. Um, and uh, I was trying to find what I wanted to do. Um, one thing I, I knew about myself, um, and I actually have come to appreciate this fact even more as a venture guy, is uh, I am very bad at coming up with ideas, uh, but I'm very good at looking at an idea in front of me and tweaking it and iterating on it hmm. and having some sort of Socratic dialogue about, about a system. And so knowing that about myself and looking for startup ideas, uh, I went to AngelList. And I don't think they have this anymore, but at the time, if you went to, this is early 2016, um, they'd have at the top, you know, little tabs, and it would be fintech and cybersecurity right. and blockchain and biotech and, you know, whatever, like, the obvious kind of major categories of, of startups were. And so what I, I made a rule uh, for myself, which was every day I'd pick one of those tabs, and I'd scroll through uh, 100 startups per day and look at them. And some of them I'd spend eight seconds on because I was just like, quick no, reject, no knowledge, no interest, right. whatever. And some of them I'd spend two hours on, just like digging around and make some notes. And so the goal of doing that was, you know, to spend a few weeks just to accumulate, okay, here's my like whatever, 10 or 15 or 20 more defined interest areas, right. and then continue the iterative process of. You triaged and identified where to focus. Correct. And so went through that process. I believe it was the third day of doing that I picked blockchain. Um, uh, as I, a category, it was one of the or, tabs on oh, the list. Yeah, as one of the tabs there, um, and started going through the startups. And of the hundred that were there, you know, most of them were like BitPay and like Bitcoin payments kind of a things. Um, and I would say probably of the hundred I went through that day, I'm gonna guess like seven to ten of them were doing something on top of Ethereum. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not know what Ethereum was. Mm -hmm. Um, but after after the third or fourth time I saw Ethereum, I was like, okay, like make a note, like go look at this thing. Started looking at at Ethereum um, by the end of the day, uh, and started to become pretty intrigued. Uh, I was pretty fortunate that I had spent just enough time playing with Stripe's APIs. Again, this is February March 2016, that I was uh, actually pretty underwhelmed. Um, Stripe even back then was a fairly hyped up company, and I didn't fully appreciate why. And I went to the website and I was like, okay, it's like a simple use API for a credit card, which did not strike me as particularly revolutionary. Embedded uh, I guess uh, in 2009, yeah. that was revolutionary to, to, to be fair to, to the Stripe guys. But as of 2016, I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and then I started filling around with Ethereum. And although Ethereum was 100 times harder to use for Stripe to just do basic payment acceptance, uh, it was infinitely more flexible. And the immediate thing I understood uh, at the time was basically what is now I would call permissionless innovation or permissionless finance. I, I didn't have that terminology certainly in my mind at that moment, and I don't think I appreciated the extent of that term, but kind of the, the, the light bulb turned on. So composability Kyle was born in this I, moment. I don't think, I think this is, this is well before composability Kyle. I don't think I could have foreseen different kinds of, of contracts and having a, a token standard that can connect to all of them. I, I think that's still several years away. And from there, started to, you know, made a note of Ethereum, started to, you know, I, again, I went through another, whatever, 10 or 15 days of picking more startups, more companies, and, and making my little list. Um, and again, ended up coming back to Ethereum kind of at the end of that process, digging more into it. Um, ended up not loving anything else of the other, whatever, 15 or 20 names I kind of narrowed in on, um, and started to dig more into Ethereum. We're now coming in to call it April or May of, of 2015, 2016, excuse me. Um, and I started to really, like the light bulb, I was like getting kind of the crypto pill at this time. Um, uh, started getting more and more into it. Uh, started investing a little bit in Ethereum. The Dow hard fork happened. Uh, I thought Ethereum was dead for sure. Um, it became pretty apparent within a couple of weeks that it was going to survive. And once it survived that moment, um, I was like, all right, like this is this is it. I'm all in. Zcash ends up launching a month or two later. 
Augur launches, um, actually, I think even before this time. Um, and I could see a bunch of startups were now building on Ethereum. And I was kind of like, at that point, all in. So, you know, over the back half of 16 and first part of 17, you know, I, I was playing with other startup ideas. Uh, I had no particular interest in building a, a startup on Ethereum or had Because you had gone I, through that experience and it's a slog and it's hard and painful. Well, I, I mean, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do something that I didn't fully appreciate. I, I didn't have anything I wanted to love to, to do, but the investing part was very fun um, and was enjoying it. And by, uh, you know, spring of 2017, I had 100% of my net worth was invested in crypto and I was spending 40, 50 hours a week reading about crypto online. And uh, I remember the day it was the Gnosis ICO. This is roughly, I think, May 12th, 2017. Uh, and they raised $12.5 million at a $300 million valuation in two or three blocks on Ethereum. So it was like 20 or 30 seconds. And I remember I called Tushar and I was like, and I'd been, we'd been kind of falling down the crypto rabbit hole together. Uh, he had a job, I did not. So I was able to spend more time on it um, at the time. And I was like, hey man, like I think, I think we need to go do something. Like this, I was like, this is crazy. We got to do something. And he was like, yeah, we got to do it. So we made the decision kind of more or less that day to, to start, sort of creating LLCs uh, and then hired some lawyers to figure out how to create LPs, we, which we didn't know much about how to create an LP. Um, started raising money from, from friends and family over the summer. Uh, we launched uh, our, what is now our, our hedge fund uh, on October 1st of 2017. Um, and we have since added a few venture funds and SPVs as well. Um, and you know, so we were really scrappy, had no idea what we were doing, but I think the fund launched with, I want to say two and a half million dollars, hmm. thereabouts. That was a liquid fund. That was our liquid fund was our first vehicle. And that vehicle runs today. That vehicle will turn six uh, years old here in a couple weeks. So a couple observations. One is son of an engineer building at young age so you had motherboards graphics cards you were buying components putting that together yep. you started a business managed people generated revenue i think the role of mentoring you referenced you referenced your father a few times too and he clearly played and played an important role as did mine as well um so i find that interesting then at nyu what did you major in in nyu finance finance okay then you said hey i'm more interested in technology and you see how these two items come together. You looked at Stripe, Embedded Finance, and you realize there's a better way to do this. Um, and so now Multicoin is launched. And it was branded Multicoin at the time, too. That's, that's correct. Got it. Okay. And now you had a thesis around EOS at the time, and that didn't work out so much. But then you discovered Solana. Uh, the, the order of operations there is not, not sure. quite that straightforward. Okay. So, I mean, Ethereum is what got me into crypto. Was I had no interest in Bitcoin. Uh, I have far less interest in Bitcoin now than I ever have, and I'm the ultimate Bitcoin bear. Um, so never had any interest. Um, I remember, you know, November of 2017 was DevCon one, DevCon three. It was in Cancun, um, and obviously this is peak of the bull market of, of that bull. You know, ETH is a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars, whatever it is, and the energy in Cancun among all the developers is electric. Vitalik gives his keynote. Um, Everyone was expecting him to have a keynote on the future of sharding and the Ethereum roadmap and what it was all going to be. All there was a lot of discourse at the time uh, around sharding and, and Plasma for scaling Ethereum. It was very well known that Ethereum needed to scale. And uh, Vitalik's keynote covered none of the above. It was just like a retrospective of like the history of Ethereum up until that point and some other like philosophical stuff about public goods and, and whatever else. And I remember I left the keynote and I was just like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, I had been following this for 18 months now. Um, Ethereum was roughly one year old when I got into it. So Ethereum is now two and a half years old. And, you know, like Ethereum is the, the darling of 2017. All eyes are on, you know, Vitalik. And we're at the developer conference and everyone is like, what's the scaling plan? Like, that's the question everyone wants to know. And literally no answer at all. And I remember just being like really disappointed uh, and frustrated. And I was like, I, I quit my job. You know, I'm all in on this crypto thing. Ethereum was my big thing. I like, what, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. And that's the first time when I started to say, okay, I need to go look, go look mm -hmm. elsewhere. At the time, the only other thing that really had any credibility at all was EOS. Um, and uh, I was actually pretty skeptical of EOS for a while. Um, but one of our analysts actually was, was a big EOS fan. And so it started digging into EOS. 
uh, and came to just appreciate the differences in the trade-offs they were making, mm-hmm. uh, both ideologically as well as technologically, um, and came to, to, to like it quite a bit. Um, and credit to the EOS team, you know, they shipped in May or I think it was June 2nd, 2018. Uh, and we got pretty excited, um, got, got involved. Um, there was a few fundamental technology decisions that they made that ultimately just ended up being wrong. Uh, around Wasm and around their their token rent model for uh, capacity in the system, and so it ended up failing for for those reasons. To be fair, a bunch of people told us ahead of time, "Hey, these technical reasons will cause the system to fail," and our view was, "Hey, they'll iterate and work through those," mm-hmm. uh, and we were just dead wrong on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of became apparent by the end of 2018 or early 2019. Um, meanwhile. Uh, Solana is, is being founded in early 2018 and we didn't have a strong view that like, well, EOS is correct and nothing else can be. We spent at this time, Definity is getting ready to, uh, getting founded, Nier is getting founded, Algorand is getting founded, Solana is getting founded, mm-hmm. Thunder, I mean, I don't remember, there Tezos, there's a whole bunch of things coming together in the first half of 2018. Mm-hmm. EOS hasn't even launched yet. And so we spend a lot, I spent a huge amount of energy with all of those teams digging into their respective systems, understanding the trade-offs, um, getting to know the founders. And there were a few things that were, were pretty unique about Solana. Uh, one was the, the background of, of the primary technical architect, Anatoly. Um, all of the other founders basically were, were fairly academic and Anatoly uh, was extremely averse to academia. Um, hmm. All of the other founders were saying, we're gonna, there's this fundamental breakthrough we can figure out in research and that's going to unlock unlimited scalability and whatever. And Anatoly was like, uh, I want to never solve a computer science problem ever. He's commercially oriented. Yeah. Well, he his view was, look, we understand the trade-offs in physics and computer science. Modern computer science as is, is called 40 years old, um, kind of post-Unix era. And, like, we know the trade-offs in memory and CPU architectures. And, like, I'm just going to make – I'm just going to redesign Ethereum, but I'm going to make it as fast as possible based on a very uh, right. nuanced understanding of yep. just computer science. Right. I'm, right. I'm going to solve zero problems, Got it. just engineering. Um, so that was one thing that really stood out. And then the second thing that really stood out was uh, he had a very focused u- use case. Um, the original, before it was called Solana, it was actually called Loom Protocol. Um, and the, the original deck, it said either NASDAQ for blockchain or blockchain at NASDAQ speed or something to that effect. Um, and the reason it said that was because Anatoly's vision from day one was he wanted to have an on-chain order book. Um, and that was the North Star. And every design decision was made around um, having the fastest permissionless global order book. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, again, and this is March, April, 2018. DeFi is not a term yet. Um, you know, Uniswap doesn't exist yet. Uh, but Anatoly's intuition was that the use case for these chains is, is trading. And I'm gonna design the best global trading system possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that kind of combination of things really struck us as like, okay, like there's really differentiated thinking here. Um, and as we kind of started to, we invested in that, that first round, I think it was in May of 18 and over the kind of next six months, got to know Anatoly better, got to keep digging more and more into the design and then came to appreciate, uh, the, the, the the more nuanced trade-offs they were making around parallelism. And that, at that point leaned in very aggressively. Got it. Uh, ended up leading a few rounds in the private markets uh, and working very closely with the team leading cool. the launch. So we'll, we'll come back to Solana. Let's double back on your learning process. So you're one of the most prolific consumers of research and content, and so am I. And I'm curious just about how you approach that in terms of your daily routines. How do you learn, process information, generate a thesis? What does day-to-day, week-to-week look like around that? Uh, it's pretty messy. Um, I'd say I spend, you know, on vacation an hour and a half on a normal day, four hours reading, uh, and reading, not meaning books. So that's just like my daily news flow. You're reading like Substack or Twitter, Substacks, Twitters, email newsletters. What are the top three? If there are any that you always go to religiously? I mean, I, I have three, more than three that are religious. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. You got a lot of bookmarks. I'd say I have 20 or 30 that are religious. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, but if I were to highlight, you know, most certainly influential in my thinking would be Stratechery. Um, ben Thompson is outstanding. Uh, for comedic relief, Matt Levine for money sure. stuff. Um, and then I'd say as a uh, just generally thoughtful uh, tech writer, um, Benedict Evans has been very influential in my thinking. 
Um, he's a little cynical for my taste, but uh, very, very influential. Um, but anyways, I you know these newsletters all come in, um, and I'm reading throughout the day, kind of whenever I can. It's decentralized content. Yeah, the, I mean the 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 what's good is the content is inherently in small bites. I mean, pretty rare I'm reading over a thousand words at a time, mm -hmm. um, and extremely rare I'm reading more than three thousand words at a time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's doable in small chunks. Overall, these are experts within different categories that you're finding. So you find someone at the top of that mountain. Yes. And you focus on their content. That, and then also at the other extreme is is Twitter and Farcaster. Um, I think I spend. I would, I think, at least thirty minutes a day on Twitter, if not, if not more. I would guess more, but sure. Um, yeah, maybe that's being a little conservative. <laughs> um, uh, and the reason, well, a, it's very fun, but B, um, I love to doom scroll on Twitter, and I think it's a great use of time uh, because mm -hmm. it's, it's look, there's all this noise out there, and there's entropy. You can and see like, the crowd and sentiment, and, and I see stuff, and I mean, my my fundamental premise of my business is like develop unique insight about the idiosyncratic thing that is poorly understood. And mm -hmm. so like by definition, my job is to find the needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And so like I figure scrolling through Twitter is just like combing through. Finding lots of news. Like yeah, we're doing an angel like, list, except now it's on Twitter. Exactly. And so uh, I, think, I, I think the desire for, I understand the desire for efficiency, uh, but the problem is, is you don't know ahead of time right. where the next needle is going to be right. in the haystack. Right. And so you just got to recognize you're swimming in it. And my view is just swim, swim. And you search, because like, there's a power law distribution of returns. And so the cost Correct. of missing a great opportunity yes. is expensive. So you have to scan and surveil. Correct. And you, you should be terrified at all times of like, am I missing the next thing? Absolutely. That's the curse of, of venture. Got it. So let's talk about your investment decision-making process, focusing on the how. Let's say you, you've got a thesis. Um, how do you approach your CIO process? Do you require unanimity? Is there a partner lead? Just unpack that for us, please. Um, so the process is, has changed over time as the firm has grown, as we've developed more trust with folks who have joined the investment team. Um, it, it used to be just uh, agreement between Tushar and myself. Um, uh, and that's what the legal docs still kind of say today. Um, in practice, it's also kind of like a, it has been a, Look, what, there's been times where one of us loved something, one of us didn't like something. I'm sure it happens and, often. And yeah. you know the way that was resolved was not therefore default it, it dies, but rather then like a very honest assessment of how much do you really love it or do you like it, and and that honesty of like okay, and not just always saying I love it just to get the deal done. Right. Right. And and so that kind of so measuring conviction in some way. Is that yeah, I mean you call it expressing conviction, um, but also you know. Uh, ability to appreciate that like the other person isn't just saying they think it's a nine as opposed to a six just to say that it's a nine right even though they actually think it's a six it takes integrity and honesty of Correct. everyone on the table to conduct the integrity themselves. and then the, obviously that bilateral trust to, right. to make that work and we've no, we've known each other for so long that 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 was there um so that was i think the core thing in the early days um as it's the firm has grown we now have other investment partners on the team um, and so now we've kind of incorporated, we have, we have a kind of a voting process that incorporates them and we have thresholds on, on how we think about these things. So that's your governance process around how you make a decision. Um, and how do you approach valuation? Are you focused on, gee, if we get the right bet, valuation works itself out because we're looking for 100x or 1,000x? Or how do you approach you know, setting price? Uh, so you just alluded to what I think is kind of the, the, the binary at the top level of, of investment decision making. Um, there should be, there should be deals you do in your career, in which you are completely price insensitive. Uh, those should be a very small percentage of deals you do. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you should, if not every year, every two or three years, like there should be something where you are just YOLO. I don't care what the price is. Mm -hmm. I'm in. Mm -hmm. I'd say um, for us, we've probably had mm, a handful of deals in MultiCoin's history in which you know one or more people. On the team expressed that view. Um, it's it's so well not only their high conviction. They say this high conviction, we're going to suspend valuation and go for this. Yes, and I believe it's in. You should. I, I believe it is, uh, the optimal way to think about decision making at a venture firm, is every so often, 
again, should be well under 1% of the time. Uh, there should be stuff that you see that you're like the conviction is there. 1% of committed deals, 1% of the total funnel of deals you look at. 1% of committed deals. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very small percentage. Very rare then. Yes. Um, in which, you know, your like conviction is there. And you're going to have unanimity around that deal, presumably. I mean, the the time it has happened, or uh, times it has happened, there has been unanimity. Sure. Okay. Um, but if, if, you know, a partner says like point blank, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, then like but we're going to become valuation. Was sensitive. Solana one of those or Aptos or uh, sampled? Solana was not that. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Just because like, I mean, a lot of things. Uh, That's okay. We don't have to get into the whys yeah. there, but. Um, okay. So I that should happen. Yeah. Very rarely. Yeah. Um. On the other ninety nine percent of deals, uh, it's hard to make generalized comments. I mean, look, yeah. the the high level math functions are like tam 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 tam. That's always the biggest thing. And like, what do you think is probability of success? And you know, do you think the founder is going to get it done? And then discount all those things back, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in venture valuations are, are squishy you know, at this A and below. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get to B and above, like you can start to have more discipline. Mm -hmm. But like TAM is for sure the biggest thing. And the biggest reason we will walk from a deal where like, let's say we bid 20 for whatever. And let's say someone bids 25. Mm -hmm. In principle, we shouldn't really care. It's 25% difference. That's probably too high degree of precision to, to actually matter. Um, but if we're just like, if we are generally concerned about TAM, then we'll be mm -hmm. like, you know what? We're not going to bet it up to 30 to, to win the deal. And we'll, just, we'll just walk. Interesting. So so team, Tam, can the founder get it done? You're working backwards from the total opportunity that you think might be addressed by this thesis. Y yeah, that's specifically in the in the context of, of valuation, which was your original right. question. I actually, had, right, I think right. there's a, a higher level thing that I would argue is, is a more important criteria for us to do something, mm -hmm. which is just like, how much do you care? And there is no defined set of inputs into that. Um, the About bringing into the world this vision? Yeah, or? just like, look, there are certain things uh, we look at that, w like, for whatever reason, one or more of us intellectually is like, I really like this. Yeah. I, I think the market's not that big, but I, for whatever intellectual reason. You feel reason, it in your bones. Yeah. Exciting. Or you just really love the founder and you're just like, I want to work with this guy or this right. gal right, for right. whatever reason. Right. And again, you may not think that given the entry price or the market size is it's not the best risk adjusted opportunity ever. But but my view is kind of like we should generally speaking only do, my, my most important criteria for doing a deal is if the founder calls you Friday at 9 p.m., you have to answer the phone. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so if you care enough, then like you'll answer the phone. Right, and that's, I don't, I don't have to care what your reason you. is for caring. Right, there's there are me, me, several good answers. Um, presumably, you're not going to do it if you think there's a three percent IRR. Presumably, it's going to be right. higher than that. Right, that that your perceived IRR is presumably an yeah. input into caring. Right, but um, I don't. We don't want to be too strict caring, around caring is really emotional investment. Yeah, in, into this thing. Gotcha, gotcha. What are the some of the qualities you look for in founders, or what are looking back? What are the traits? Let me frame it up for you in this way. There's an interesting uh, framework that Mark Andreessen laid out on a Huberman podcast, where he looks at the big five personality attributes. He's looking at for things like openness and intelligence, looking for low neuroticism. I've got my own framework. I use a different kind of language, but generally kind of patterns to some of the, what he was saying, if not all of it. Curious, do you have have you noticed as a clustering? of certain features and founders that you look for or disqualify founders in any way? Um, yeah, I think there's a handful of things we look for. I don't think about them in traditional kind of psychological test terms. Sure. Although perhaps there are, are psychological tests for these things that I'm not aware of. Um, but I'd say the handful that stand out to us are uh, clarity of thought. Um, my preference is in writing. I like that more as someone who has a strong bias for writing. Yeah. Um, that's, again, 1% of the time that happens. Right. But I appreciate the clarity of thought. So clarity of thought is the most important in my opinion. I mean, I'd, I'd say the related concept is just like, what it, is, can the founder per portray some insight or ideally can they just portray the, the outright the thesis? So right. for example, like when we first met Amir at Helium, he was very clear. He said, you know, he started at Helium in 2013. It's now 2019 and he says, I wanted to change, I wanted there to be wireless spectrum everywhere for these IoT devices. And we raised a bunch of money 
and we started deploying it with enterprises. And then our customer said, I want you to have a global telecom network. And then I didn't know what the fuck to do. And I thought about what if I can do this token thing to incentivize people to build a network. Mm -hmm. And like, that was the thesis. Mm -hmm. And the, the background and the story and the context, all of it was there. Right. And like, it was crystal clear what we were underwriting. I, I want to double underscore the importance of writing. There's no better way to measure clarity of thought than writing. I love to write. It forces clarity. Oftentimes, if you, if you listen to what someone says and you transcribe it on a piece of paper, you look at it it's and terrible. it might not make any sense. There's no clarity or coherency. So I appreciate that approach. I also like the concept of white paper because it forces clarity. I'm a little against X, but we'll leave that aside. I think there's a shared idea around the importance of storytelling. That's a common theme between slide decks and, and writing. Yeah, so, totally, totally with you. So uh, clarity of thought um, is the biggest. Second is probably like resiliency. Anything I can, you know, it, this is harder to measure, yeah. but at least, you know, like a, a very obvious case of resiliency would be they did start up, sort of failed. Yes. They're getting up and doing it again. Right. Phenomenal signal. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'd say there's a generally a negative correlation between age and resiliency. Um, 22 year olds just generally don't give a fuck and that's great. And that's why there is a, a, a bias there or in, the, in hmm. the data. The um, older you are, the less resilient you are. You tend to be right? just further like kids, you know, like wife, just like less willing to take Less risk taking appetite. Not but also, but also less willing to, to bounce back. It's a, it becomes easier to say, I'm going to go work at Google and make $300,000. Right, right, I see. Um, the 22-year-olds uh, just don't care about that. Got it. So resiliency, another attribute. Question on how to measure. You gave one indication of that. Now, let's subtopic there on the age briefly, and we'll come back up to the criteria. But I don't know if you've seen like the distribution of age profiles and then entrepreneurial success. Uh, if you've looked at that at all, if you have a view, I've seen that the data. Or... I think it's, I think I want to say forty years of the peak. Exactly, like yeah. when David Rubenstein started Carlyle, for instance, right? Then you have the Mark Zuckerbergs, and obviously, there's a tremendous amount of wealth that's been created by a very young population. Um, any thoughts around how you look at that as a criteria, or? Y yeah, I don't. I don't mean to say that um, age, is, but I suspect if you look at the forty-year-olds who do start it, I suspect most of them you can see some pretty substantial failures earlier in their career. And where they got back up and dusted themselves right. off. So you're back to your resiliency. Back test. to the resiliency where I can just see, okay, did you, you know, I want to see you get knocked down and get up. Right. Because so you're going to get knocked down. And so you got to get back sense. up. Clarity of thought, resiliency. What else? Um, and then like, do they, do they inspire? Like, do you know, can I see them attracting other people to it? Right. And there's different ways to do that. Um, we can look at, for example, one extreme is like Yaniv, who is the founder of The Graph in our portfolio. And he has a very specific aura, and he speaks to a very specific kind of ideology and engineer. Yep. Um, and that's one way to do it. Uh, another way to do it is Anatoly, for example, at Solana. Anatoly, basically their criteria is like, you need to be an amazing distributed systems engineer, and like only the top 1% are gonna get in. Um, and there's a, a culture around engineering excellence. And again, there's other points in the different spectrum, multi-dimensional spectrum here. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, do I think this this founder is going to be able to attract mm -hmm. uh, the kinds of people they're going to need to, given the nature of their business? Mm -hmm. Let's double click on resiliency. I think resiliency is critical if you're investing. If you're not resilient, you're going to sell at the bottom, or you won't have the conviction or the rigor in analysis. How do you personally cultivate resiliency? I don't know. It's some combination of. Genetic Sometimes plus it's just it's genetics. Just how I was raised. I mean, <laughs> my parents both immigrated to the United States. They're both from Iran. Uh, I was born and raised here, uh, but I saw they're both entrepreneurs. My mom's a dentist. Dad's a software engineer. Uh, I was taught from a very early age you should work hard. That's well, all I ever saw. Children of immigrants, I do think, have a lot more resilience because immigration arguably is the highest form of risk taking. You're leaving your country, you're leaving the comfort, you're betting on an unknown future, you have this ideal of a better world, and you're thinking longer term. Uh, I'm, I'm also the, the son of a, an immigrant family as well, and I've reflected on that, so I agree resiliency is there. But you also are deliberate about exercise, right? I think you're a prolific biker, is that right? Cycling, yeah. Cycling. You can see I'm not really a biker or cycler, I just try to exercise in different ways here at CrossFit. But is there anything more you want to share around there? Other routines that you might have, whether it's meditation or diet, food, exercise, sleep, whatever it might be to manage stress and resiliency? Um, yeah. Um, 
it comes in out of different phases. I'd say the most constant has been cycling. I've tried to getting into meditation. I've, I've appreciated it more. It's hard when you have ADHD, though, right? <laughs> it is. It is a little difficult. Um, cycling is my kind of like my home base. Okay. Um, and especially outdoor. I mean, I do mostly indoor because of, of time constraints. But outdoor cycling is my got it. Is my escape. And you have like a steady routine around that. Um, less steady than you would think. I mean, I yeah. look at my calendar a couple weeks out and then put cycling slots on it. Okay. Um, but those are not necessarily every day at eight a.m. kind of a thing. Um, one thing I have found that helps is not having anything early in the morning and I, w I can wake up at six 30, I can wake up at seven 30, I can wake up at eight, but waking up whenever my body tells me to get up, mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, having the flexibility from there. And so I typically have workouts scheduled, typically not first thing in the morning, mm -hmm. um, for that, for that workouts reason, not in the morning or scheduled in the morning. Sorry. I typically do not have anything scheduled prior to 8am. Gotcha. And when do you get your daily fitness in then? Yeah, so typically scheduled 11 a.m., 2 p.m., 5 p.m. I mean, really so it's sporadic time. and it's opportunistic. Yes, very much so. If I'm on the road, it'll typically be first thing in the morning. Okay. But uh, I'm of the view you get it done in the morning because of adherence. Everyone knows they need yes. to exercise. But if you don't get it done quickly, and I'm a night owl person, but I find that if I exercise in the morning, I sleep better during the day or during the evening, and I'll wake up fresh without an alarm, like you said. And get after it the next day. Yeah, I think I think that's correct for most people. Um, I I want to wake up whenever I want to wake up. That that right. to me is like the arguably the highest thing to optimize for. And so, given that is my uh, highest constraint, um, I don't want to have a six thirty or seven a.m. scheduled. Understood. Scheduled thing. Yeah, like that's you know what Charlie Munger says was the most productive creative hours of one's day and focus it. Any supplementation strategies or other tactics? I mean, I'm generally on the Atia bandwagon. Um, I've listened to, to a lot of his stuff. Um, nothing, I mean, creatine, general uh, fish oil supplements, like other pretty basic things. Sure. Um, beyond that, like nothing terribly special. I mean, the, the big one is just protein consumption and, and prioritizing protein. Yeah. Any longevity tactics you apply, like fasting, intermittent fasting? I used to do a lot of that stuff. Used to be a metformin, have dropped all of that. No longer. That was your COVID thing, or no? No, that was <laughs> even pre pre COVID. Oh, okay. Uh, nowadays, uh, it's, it's uh, cardio, lifting, and protein and sleep. Gotcha, gotcha. So okay, great. Else. Now let's bring resiliency back to the Solana experience. So Solana, you know, you obviously were in very early, extraordinarily successful investment, then it dropped, then it bounced again, and all the media drama around that, and when you're dealing with LPs, of course, LPs are often lagging. And, you know, Howard is a mutual friend, Howard Linsden. I think he's a mutual investor as well. And I've talked to Howard about his experience with, with Robinhood. I'll, I'll, I'll share the story so then you can get into Solana. But, you know, he got in Robinhood early. It was non-consensus. His LPs didn't understand it. Then Robinhood goes to two, three, five, eight billion dollars. He's selling their way up and they're saying, well, what are you doing? Robinhood goes into public markets. He wants liquidity. Then it's dropping. His LPs say, looking back, hey, thank you for everything you did there. So he was non-consensus versus his LP experience. So leaving aside the thesis around Solana, what was your experience around that from a re personal resiliency perspective, how you navigate that, the decisions that, are, that you're contemplating, the LP experience around just all the volatility around Solana? You've got a liquid trading fund, you've got other partners. How, how did you live through that? Um. Yeah, you know, there's the famous saying is, right, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I, I think, uh, I'm not sure there's something quite as catchy for information, but I suspect a, a similar kind of psychological uh, or sociological uh, thing is at play, which is uh, the types of information you consume uh, impact how you think. Um, yes, ideas or memes. Ideas or memes. The viruses, yeah. Specifically, what I'm really getting to is just price, is just the more you look at prices, uh, the more that they screw with your head um, to the extent I do look at prices. And, and I've had times when I was younger, I looked at prices every day. So what was your experience on like say Q4 of last year? I mean, did you have LP saying, hey, can I get liquidity or how are you thinking about this? And they're DMing you, SMSing you, and they probably want some emotional reassurance. Their basic beliefs and convictions are shaken in the thesis and the ecosystem etc. What what was that journey like with your LPs? Yeah, certainly in the wake of the FTX crisis, um, 
you know, we, we sent out a note immediately to all of our LPs. Hey, we have some assets on the exchange. I think it was 10 or 11% of the fund or something. Um, so we told them, hey, you know, sorry, this is what we know. We'll get back to you and give us another week as we just like. Because you're learning. Work. It's real time. It's real time, war. right? So uh, in a crisis, real-time communications are important. Every time there's been a major crisis, we've typically sent out a note to our LPs just saying, hey, we're not involved. Communicate, communicate, you know, right? communicate. For example, when Luna collapsed last year, we were like, hey, guys, FYI, no exposure. You know, we're good. Um, with FTX, unfortunately, we could not say we had no exposure. So immediate crisis comes and then, you know, let the crisis pass a little and then start to regroup and provide some analysis of where things are. Uh, and then, of course, make sure to then reiterate, okay, hey, what have we learned? What has changed? Um, do we still believe the things we thought? And kind of re reiterate the, those things. And, and, and then See, be right. able to uh, explain for the things that have changed, well, why have they changed? And for the things that not have changed, why have they not changed? Mm -hmm. um, and so we went, obviously went through that process. And, and got it. So it's primarily increased communication through written correspondence. You weren't convening written calls. Written and, and, and we did a few more Zooms. You call, that got it. Well. You have a few more Zooms. Maybe reach out to select LPs or just be responsive to their needs and reassure them around your thesis and lay out your reasoning. Yes. Um, all of that makes a ton of sense. Um, and because you're not a trading fund, you had integrity in terms of now start to, to lean in and approach this. So, you know, that resonates with me. Now let's talk about Solana specifically. You know, so you may have seen this chart around the the float of Solana relative to the price, and there's this unlock schedule around it, and there's this idea that venture investors around Solana have to be committed long Solana because they've got this supply overhang over the next few years. What's your perspective? By the way, I'm not neither long nor short Solana. I'm genuinely interested in this analysis. I just want to understand and selfishly, if I can share that with the public and learn at the same time, this is a great format to do so. So I'm curious how you think about that. Uh, yeah, so um, the, the big FUD is, you know, the FTX estate is going to sell 40 million sold, whatever the number is in the market. Therefore, the price is going to crash. Obviously, it's reflexive. Everyone front runs that and right, like kind of classic um, re reflexive spiral situation. Um, so that's the, the FUD. Um, the reason I'm not really worried about it is twofold. One, at a higher level, uh, my favorite form of FUD ever is someone's gonna sell. Like, great. Like, I just, I don't, that's, I love hearing that because that's the best you've got. <laughs> like, awesome. That, that tells me thesis is intact, everything else is working. Hmm. <laughs> that's the best you've got. Hmm. Uh, We've seen a lot well, of point, that. Point point one, one A is then the last time everyone said, oh my God, everyone's going to sell a bunch of soul. This thing is over, uh, was January 2021. <laughs> and we, we were the, at that, instead of it being the FTX estate selling, we were the ones being, uh, everyone saying, oh my God, they're going to sell. Mm -hmm. We didn't. Um, and the rest is history after that. Uh, but I just, it's just particularly funny for me with that asset, with that criticism specifically. As, as a meta comment. So you're looking at investment thesis, not narratives around selling. To your, to your point, I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah, I don't care. I mean, you have, everyone has a right to sell. And like, right. you know, like, okay, like oh, in a, over the course of several years, what percentage of the holder base turns over? I don't know if it's 400%. I don't know if it's 800%. I don't know if it's 1,500%. But like, it's not like it would have been 30% and now this is going to make it 40 and like it's going to increase the turnover right. by 25%. Like, and is that time frame driven? So you don't care about if people are talking about technical selling because you're an investor with a longer time frame. Is that why, or is it because when people talk about selling, uh, it doesn't manifest in prices? Or why is it that you dismiss that? Because you know, well, yeah, time horizon is part of it. Is a big. I mean, my time horizon is generally longer than than most people's. Um, so that that's that's part of it. But also, um, the other part is just is is like again. Okay, the, the tokens unlock over four years, I think. Uh, so like, do whatever. This is, I think, of the percentage of the total float, it's something like 8% or 12% of the float. Okay, it's like, it's a meaningful percentage, but like, it's not 90% of the float, obviously. And like, over the course of that four years, how much was the other 90% going to turn over anyways? Again, I don't know. Is it, I, I'd be pretty surprised if it was less than 300%. And very well could be 1,200%. And so if you're talking about an extra, call it 10% turnover, 
on top of 300%, that's 310%. Like, who, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what are you, what are you worried about? A lot about? of it, I, you know, I liken it back to like an IPO unlock. I always look at when these IPO unlocks happen because I want to make sure I de-risk and you want to look at the flow and the supply out there and all the rest. And I think that's how people like this. And I haven't looked at the Solana schedule at all, but I'm sure people would have this kind of question. Yeah, well, that's part of it. I mean, it's just, it's just time horizon and then just understanding, again, like what, what percentage will turn over. But the last part, and this is actually the most, it's the one that there's no facts out there, but is, is obvious, uh, is that mechanically, uh, the FTX estate uh, is trying to wind itself down. That is, at this point, mm-hmm. give the money back to creditors and go home. And by definition, the slowest way to do that is to wait four and a half more years for all of these, these things to unlock. Um, they very clearly are trying to get assets back to creditors. And so uh, the very obvious thing to do is to go sell all of those mm-hmm. tokens to venture investors. Obviously, there'll be some discount to the spot price, um, but, pre- but presumably anyone who's showing up to buy is mm-hmm. like a venture fund with a very long horizon who's a long-term believer and mm-hmm. is not going to be selling every month mm-hmm. as the tokens unlock. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's just very obvious to me that's how this will clear out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think even even the uh, alle- like the, the alleging, well, it's doomed for this reason, just like defies the basic logic of like, well, okay, what is the motivation of the estate mm-hmm. and how are they actually going to manage their position? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift gears now to the what. We talked about the how you make decisions. And, you know, as I started the conversation, I think you're one of the most non-consensus thinkers out there. So I want to see what your thesis is and learn from that. But my own point of view, and I think it's there's a lot of learning opportunity around that. And you've also had the view that we need more focus on the apps rather than the infrastructure layer. And consensus, I would say, is on the infrastructure layer, on the picks and shovels. And there's this comment um, I tweeted yesterday that Ethereum is prioritizing decentralization, Solana is prioritizing breakthrough apps. I don't think of it as a good or bad. I mean, I think differentiation is actually important. You want to see differentiation. There's room um, for more than one uh, player as well. Do you think that's an accurate summary or h- how would you look at where you see Solana and Ethereum going? And I guess that the broader context around this is the trilemma, right? And I guess two years ago, my thought process was that you're going to see chains focus on different aspects of the trilemma, try to differentiate around that. Solana focusing on speed and usability, Ethereum focusing on decentralization. But now you're starting to see light clients, you're starting to see folks seeming to want to check a broader set of criteria rather than narrowly focusing on one vertex of the trilemma. So a lot there, but how, you know, again, how do you think about the kind of long-term differentiation of Solana and Ethereum? And is that a fair organizing principle? Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of thoughts here. Where, where do we get? So uh, I think most researchers in the space today don't think about the trilemma much anymore. I, I certainly don't. Um, Decentralization, there, there are a lot of ways to measure decentralization. Mm-hmm. Um, a system is, as a general statement, as decentralized as its most centralized components. Um, and so if you are trying to maximize decentralization, you should be trying to maximize uh, all of those vectors. Those vectors uh, include things like number of validators, number of leaders, number of leaders to get to 33%, number of leaders to get to 67%, uh, number of, of clients and code bases, number of physical data centers um, that things are, there's a bunch of these that sure, you, sure. you can get into. Right, uh, a lot and, of limiting and some of them are, too. So, and some of them are, are more important than others um, across different dimensions. So for example, like censorship, number of code bases is important primarily for uh, resiliency if there's bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very specific form of decentralization. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't matter except in a moment of crisis, mm-hmm. which it does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, others like uh, Nakamoto coefficient are directly right. a function of uh, censorship resistance right. um, and also neutrality of transaction inclusion mm-hmm. in blocks. Right. So I don't want to go into the, the rabbit hole of like each of those and the pros sure. and cons of them and, and whatever. Right. What, what I would say is that Solana is primarily focused on uh, a few things here. One is, most importantly, is use case. Uh, which was and still continues to be NASDAQ on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then from, and then from there, the, uh, what that means is uh, they are trying to maximize uh, the number of consensus participants all over the world, geographically, as well as uh, Nakamoto coefficient, because that, that increases the credible neutrality 
of the exchange of the probability that any one leader is going to block your transaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once Solana, I think at some point next year, will add concurrent block production, meaning uh, they will be able to have multiple two, three, four, five leaders at the same time. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, that will dramatically increase the amount of credible neutrality per unit of time mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the primary things that Solana optimizes for. Mm -hmm. From what I can tell, the primary thing Ethereum is optimizing for is the number of nodes that are able to uh, validate the state of the chain. Um, and not necessarily in full, but probabilistically with data availability right. sampling, um, which is a very different thing to optimize for. Mm -hmm. uh, I cannot describe to you why that is the optimal thing from a commercial perspective. I understand why from a certain ideological perspective that may be what you want to optimize for, mm -hmm. but I do not understand how that maps to long-term commercial mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. output. Mm -hmm. um, I can describe to you why credibly neutral NASDAQ is the foundation for like human financial coordination over the next 50 years. Is there, you know, like I, I'm a, as an entrepreneur, I'm very pragmatic and commercial focus matters. You have to know your customer target, the use case and work backwards. You need revenue, you need generation of that. i also want to see securities on chain too. I think we need to embrace revising and policy shifts around securities laws. So I like the overall vision of decentralized markets on chain and NASDAQ on chain. Do you think there's a hangover effect from like the SBF that might taint adoption from the parties that might want to come on chain, even if the technology is there, even if the technology delivers as advertised? Without question, uh, the future otherwise got pushed out because of, of FTX. Uh, did it get pushed out one year, three years, seven years? I can make arguments for all three of those numbers. Sure. Um, don't really know. Uh, but certainly it was more than zero days. Um, does, is that going to, I think the more important question is, with some probability distribution of it getting pushed out, does that actually change the arc of history such that a different thing ends up uh, consuming that space? Mm -hmm. um, in most technology markets, I would tend to think the answer to that is yes, that changes the fundamental probability uh, of the outcome. Mm -hmm. pretty substantially, meaning mm -hmm. another technology could instead win. Mm -hmm. In this case, I mean, I just look at Ethereum and like, I, I cannot describe to you technologically how it is going to do NASDAQ on-chain or anything approaching NASDAQ on-chain or anything approaching Visa on-chain. And uh, and I don't see their path to, they, they don't even particularly seem to want to go there. And so, and obviously that's their number one competitor. And so, I don't right. we don't particularly. Vital, we'll get Vitalik here too to talk about L twos and L threes. But I, I hear yeah, you, so. and so I'm just <laughs> like, it doesn't really strike me that like their probability of success is meaningfully decreased. I mean, it, it's certainly down relative to what it was in a counterfactual world in which FTX didn't blow up, but it's not clear to me that that's a substantial decrease. Let's talk about render token. So we've been focused on AI. We do think it's transformational technology. Uh, and do you want to? showcase the render thesis and my follow-up question to that will be can you have fast decentralized compute that can rival the service expectations a customer would have on any ai product yeah so the thesis for render is airbnb for your graphics card um that's the super simple version of it um elaborating on that a little bit uh one people have been generally talking about doing distributed taking latent compute resources, storage, compute, and bandwidth from computers all over the world and creating marketplaces for those things mm -hmm. for different kinds of, of applications. This has been a long-running dream in software for at least the last 20 years. It looks horrible, like SETI. Um, yeah, I mean, the first version of it, in, you could argue, was Napster. Um, the second version kind of sort of was BitTorrent. Um, there's been Lime other versions wire, of this, right. yeah, over, over the last, last years. In the context of crypto, there's been you know a few dozen attempts at ver versions of this. Filecoin being the most notable. Yep. Um, I think that with compute specifically, we're at a very interesting point in time because the supply demand imbalance uh, is so acute and so painful. Um, and so I think that the opportunity, I think render is going to be the primary benefactor uh, of this, where people will say, I don't care where the graphics cards are, I j I just need something because Something is better than well. This is how Bitcoin started, right? If I can earn economics 
by using some compute. Latent resources, yeah. Correct, latent resources, and then you get a flywheel going around it. But what about the technical feasibility? Yeah, so so the, the uh, most common critique of render is, uh, it's you know most of the people who are in the, providing GPUs on the render network uh, are not H100s and A100s, which is correct. Uh, but that's kind of missing the point for two reasons. One, training is off the table. No one is training large models uh, on, on distributed systems. You need all of the, the GPUs hooked up together in a one room. So training is off the table. Inference is where the opportunity is. Um, and my answer, and then you know, people say, well, you know, you're not gonna run GPT-4 on uh, you know, a 4080 or 4090 on some guy's computer at home. And the answer to that is obviously correct. But, but I think that's kind of missing the point. Um, what we're seeing now is with Llama and with the other open source models is these are proliferating. People are right now running Llama on 4080s and 4090s at home. And what I, what I, my, my core problem with the critique of the model doesn't run on the GPU is it, it fundamentally is misunderstanding the elasticity of supply and demand. Um, the demand is not, oh my God, I need this exact Llama model exactly as Facebook put it out. I can't make any changes to it. And if it doesn't run perfectly for this configuration, then then the hardware is useless. The and that, that's that's right. the demand on the the side of the application developer is not is not that binary. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of people, I believe, would pr prefer to have a system where they say, whatever performance of the model is fifteen percent worse, but the model has been designed to run in a more constrained environment with whatever the memory and GPU you know parameters are of a forty eighty or forty ninety, mm -hmm. and. Like and and if we can increase the amount of available supply of compute by a factor of a hundred x, and reduce the cost by a factor of a hundred x, then of course that's worth a fifteen percent reduction in model quality, and um, the software is evolving very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, and because these systems like Llama are open source, they're being forked, and there's all kinds of different parameters right. of those coming and out. Inference costs are coming down, and hardware costs are hardware is becoming more accessible. Right, and so what I believe is that the, the, the models will evolve. Mm -hmm. The primary constraint in the whole system is, is, is GPUs, is compute hardware, and therefore the software will evolve around the primary constraint. The primary constraint is not if the model's 15% dumber, then the consumers won't use it. So software will rise to the standard of hardware accessibility and the solutions and use cases will flow from that. Correct. So that part of the market will be addressed first. I, I mean, the, the most famous example of this in the last 20 years in software is mobile. Uh, Windows couldn't run on uh, a, a phone. And in fact, Microsoft had Windows Mobile, which was a completely separate thing. Um, iOS, they took Mac OS, they cut out 90% of the fucking code base and redid the touch UI and everything and made right. iOS. Uh, and it runs on ARM, not Intel. And mm -hmm. like they made a bunch of, and they cut the software down to fit on the hardware. Right. Adjust and, for the relevant form factor. Right. right. Yeah. In that case, the hardware delta was more extreme than or, uh, than is yeah, here. And this is a journey. But, but it's fundamentally so. the same idea, which is, okay, the primary constraint is hardware. Therefore, we will optimize the software accordingly. It's, it's a really interesting perspective. How far are we from commercial traction or revenue on Render Token? Render Network is doing today roughly $10 million rate annualized, um, and I expect that to accelerate meaningfully. And is there a primary use case that you're seeing or customer target that's landing? Today, the primary customers of the Render Network are artists doing 3D design. Um, they are starting to do a meaningful number of stable diffusion workloads, uh, and I expect in the next 12 months they will start to do a lot of language model Got workloads it. as well. Is there an economic flow back to the token holder to um, participate? In the current system, no. In the system that is launching pretty near in the near future, yes. Oh, so it, it'll be like a, a yield or a burn component. Yeah, so so um, I wrote a blog post five and a half years ago um, in which I, I coined a term called burn and equilibrium for, for token design. Um, the render, the render uh, DAO uh, some, some people wrote up a proposal, submitted it to the DAO to move render to this new burn and mint system. That proposal passed six, eight, nine months ago. Uh, it is going to go into effect in the fairly near Got future. Got it. So I'll have to do some more homework on this. We're not giving any financial advice on this, by the way. I haven't looked at the valuations, but it's uh, you laid out an intriguing thesis. I want to take a look there. And just at the uh, conference, we're at permissionless here. I believe you laid out the point that L2s will create their own L1s. I heard this secondhand, by the way. I don't know if that you said that or not. Uh, if yeah, so I mean, the zoom out for a second. Um, sure. There's an open question in my mind of like, what should the value of an L2 be versus the L1 that it is attached to? 
Um, this is a question a lot of people have asked. My general sense is that consensus view is the L1 should be worth several multiples of all of the L2s combined. I think most people in Ethereum land loosely believe that. Um, some even may strongly believe that. Um, I have generally come to the opposite conclusion um, to the consternation of a lot of other folks. Um, the way I think about this is there are three-ish kind of fundamental forms of value driver to um, an L1 or an L2 token. One is uh, paying for data availability or data publishing, which is what uh, one of the three things Ethereum does today and the only of the three things Ethereum is intended to be used for in the modular theoretical future. The second is paying for compute resources and workloads. Um, again, Ethereum does that today, mm -hmm. but theoretically that will be outsourced to the L2 mm -hmm. in future theoretical mm -hmm. worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third um, is MEV, uh, just the, the opportunities mm -hmm. that emerge, right. um, which, which is uh, different from compute, but kind of fundamentally bundled to it. Um, and again, that Ethereum has traditionally captured that, um, and that is being punted away to mm -hmm. L2s. Mm -hmm. So there's three drivers here, data, compute, and MEV. Um, and Settlement and security being the kind of common principles around this as well, right? I mean, data, in my opinion, settlement is, is, is Im inherently emergent from data publishing or data availability. Okay. Um, like the core technical thing, I mean, look in the computer, your, com your computer literally does three things. It can store data, it can compute data, and it can send data to other computers. Mm -hmm. Like those are the only three things computers do. Um, and, and we can see that directly in, in the value attribution here. Um, so the Ethereum used to capture three things. Mm -hmm. uh, it is explicitly punting two of those away mm -hmm. and keeping one of those. Mm -hmm. um, so in a very simple sense, I'm like, okay, well, two thirds of the things you were doing, you were no longer doing. Mm -hmm. That does not strike me as good for value capture mm -hmm. um, as common A. Um, and then the second thing, and, and this is, is, is probably the more important, I think, is um, Ethereum is inherently being disintermediated uh, by the L2s. The customer of a blockchain is developers, and uh, developers interface with the system, and they have state on the blockchain, and they deal with the API docs, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. But like the developer is the customer, mm -hmm. and it used to be the developers were facing ETH L1, and they are increasingly facing various L2s. Um, there is no reason why those L2s cannot simply replace ETH L1 as the data layer, and in fact, it, one of the fundamental tenets of the modular thesis is that you can rip and replace the data layer. It is modular, like that. That is explicit in the name of this design framework. And mm -hmm. so, while mm -hmm. I understand that today the ethos of none of the L2s is around ripping out ethl one, um, and I think generally bringing that up today would be effectively considered heresy in most of those communities. Um, I think I think there is very much a state of the world in four, five, six years, in which the the token holders of those systems look at ethl one, and they're like, we're paying rent to you for nothing. It's an original, not consensus view. I'll share a, a quick framework for you too, and I'd love to get your take on this. I liken it to the relationship between Visa and the card issuers. We talked about, I think, payments earlier. So Visa charges about eight basis points, uh, and they provide uh, authorizations, fraud, the network, call it, right? And then you have the card issuers like JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Capital One, and they own the end customer relationship. They're responsible for merchant acquiring and acquiring the customer. They charge interchange, and they actually capture the bulk of the economics around the business. By the way, they also work with multiple, call it chains, Discover Card or American Express. And that's an interesting question. Well, who captures the most value there? Now, zooming out, they're all making money. Visa has been one of the best performing stocks for decades. That's one. They've got a couple hundred billion dollars in market cap. I think they're four or five hundred. Four hundred five billion market cap. Correct. It's a yeah, yeah. That's it's pretty a, big. It's a fantastic business, and they take zero credit risk. And as a network grows, they grow. It's a rent capture model. Fantastic triopoly that should be disrupted by all the decentralized technologies and technology that we want to go see in the world. But it's a phenomenal business. That's one. On the other hand, the card issuers are also making money. What I haven't seen anyone do is do a bottoms up kind of market cap tied to revenue analysis to see which of those two pools are greater. I think the conventional wisdom though is that Visa's got a better model because if you're JP Morgan, you're taking credit risk, although that doesn't quite apply here. You really want to look like the debit interchange model, be a more closer analogy. 
but also the folks that do own the customer relationship do have the most margin because it's a retail relationship and you're touching the customer. You can influence and direct the customer. And that's, I think, the thesis that you're, you're making here. Um, yes, but uh, I mean, it's not retail, so I, I would sure, I wouldn't sure. lean too heavily there. Yeah. Um, I think of it more just as uh, if you are a customer of, let's say, if you're a developer and you're using Vercel, Twilio, uh, Mongo, it doesn't matter. Pick almost any uh, major cloud service of choice that is not um, write it yourself on AWS. Um, if you use any other service, the kind of point of that service is you don't care if it's on AWS, if it's on actually on Amazon or Google or Microsoft. Um, and so those are being disintermediated. Like, you can abstract away to correct, any platform. Right. And so that, that's kind of my bigger point is that in this case, in this analogy, Ethereum L1 is AWS and you're now using some other whatever MongoDB or whatever other system and yeah, sure, today Mongo is running on AWS, but tomorrow they can just go off it's AWS. A, it's a fascinating point because there's this thesis that when crypto is successful, it's invisible, it's behind the scenes like TCP IP, no one knows the technology. Yes. And if that's the case, the party that owns the customer relationship, they that's can identify what their infrastructure stack. Correct. Interesting. This has been phenomenal. Is there any concluding message you want to share with the audience while we're here, Kyle? Um. You know, it's a uh, it's a bear market. A lot of uh, reasons to ignore crypto and be bored. But I'll say it's uh, it's a fun time to be in the space. We uh, a lot of cool opportunities are emerging, and uh, I think the next cycle we'll start to see some more consumery things and more things that are less fundamentally speculative in nature. And I'm quite excited about that. I'm excited as well. I heard an interesting take from the conference, which I'll share here, which is that AI has the hype and the FOMO, but cryptos were you can make the money still. <laughs> I think that's an accurate statement. And uh, I uh, want to thank Kyle again for joining me here. It was great to just unpack your brain and, and see how you think. Ron, thanks for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening in on the episode. Remember, in the world of investing, the road less traveled often leads to the greatest rewards. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and chief investment officer at Lumida Wealth where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. Invest wisely, stay ahead of the curve, and stay non-consensus.